0: conservative constitutional it's the andrew cooper writer show keeping you informed on what's going on right here in kentucky and welcome everybody to a wonderful friday here on the andrew cooper writer show of course i'm your host andrew cooper writer we've got a full list of things to go over today First, Bashir's lackeys have launched a nonprofit called Heckbent in order to get done his policy goals. We'll talk about uh, everything that means. Additionally, we've got the floor discussion on Senate Bill 10, which passed the Senate this week. Uh, The bill would move our governor elections as well as all the other constitutional officers' elections onto the presidential election year. We'll hear arguments on both sides. Longtime listeners know I'm not such a big fan of this bill. Then we'll dig into more about the budget and, and a few more points to make as we dig into even more of this massive $72 billion budget. That our legislature has saw so fit to spend of our dollars. We'll dig into all that today here on the Andrew Cooperator show. But before I dig into it, please if you want to reach out to the show, feel free to email info at theandrewshow.com. Once again, that's info at theandrewshow dot com. Make sure you're liking, comment, sharing, subscribing, sharing, telling others, sharing. I've said sharing now three times. Because you know what? A lot of work goes into this. So I hope you're happy. Anyways, Bashir has launched a nonprofit heck bit. Well, not Bashir, but his former campaign manager from 2019 and 2023 has launched a 501c4. Now it's important to understand 501c4 is in the world of campaign finance. 501c4s are different than, of course, a typical nonprofit. 501c3s, that would be like your churches, your other nonprofits. Those are tax deductible. 501c4s, you cannot deduct from your taxes the money you give to them, but they are, quote unquote, nonprofits. So this means that unlike uh, certain types of PACs and, of course, political candidates, they actually don't have to disclose who's giving them money and how much they can take in all the money they want to. And it's real funny, you know, how these operations work because so often uh, we talk about how does, uh, you know, the the campaign finance laws are really just for people like you and me. They're not for the wealthy that uh, really want to bankroll campaigns. Trust me. If somebody wants to get a million dollars into a campaign, they know how to do it. They can either create, of course, a, A pack if they want to disclose if they don't feel like disclosing they can create uh, dark money groups so-called dark money groups such as these 501c4s so while they themselves 501c4s cannot expend money advocating for the defeat or election of a certain individual they can donate money to packs that do advocate (laughs) for the defeat or election of an individual so kind of real easy wiggle room hole there don't you think But anyway, so this group says that they are there to go ahead and try to get Bashir's policy goals in place, essentially to do social advocacy, which is what 501c4s are mainly supposed to do in order to convince others to go ahead and support Annie Bashir's. Uh, desires such as universal pre-K, um, getting rid of attacking, of course, school choice, so on and so forth, because of, obviously Annie Bashir has found that it's very difficult for him to engage with the legislature on this issue because obviously the legislature – Uh, is Republican and voted for by Republican voters. I mean, most of our legislature, a good portion of them, do not exist in what's so-called purple districts. They're not worried about losing their general election. They're worried about the primaries. And so they're more concerned about pleasing their primary voters than they are the general voters. That's just how it is. And Bashir's lackeys don't like that. So they're demanding that, well, we do something about it. I think this is just greater evidence of how, you know, the Democrat Party is so much better at getting along and working with the grassroots side of things than the Republican Party. Because here we have a Democrat funded group separate from the DNC that will be pushing on Democrat priorities, will be well funded, I'm sure, and will do the hard work that candidates sometimes can't of trying to convince the public the long term hard work of trying to convince the public but on the republican side of the aisle we don't do those kinds of things we wonder why we you know we take issues such as they claim abortion is a losing issue They say abortion's a losing issue for candidates. Well, let's pretend for a second I even think that's true. It's not that abortion is a losing issue as much as it is the public's opinion on it doesn't coalesce right now with where somebody's thought process is. I once again I don't actually agree with that statement. Uh, I think that uh, you know Republicans do a bad job generally as candidates and others of generally kind of presenting their arguments. Democrats show a lot better of presenting their rose colored arguments and Republicans do a lot harder job of saying like, no, that their arguments are dumb and stupid and they're murdering children here. Let me show you why. But anyways, and a large part of that and a large part of the abortion issue falls to the fact that you're asking candidates to go up on TV and be the ones to defend a no exemptions except for life of the mother position without engaging the grassroots you need to be in order to get it done. The kinds of people that can actually take those actions. In fact, when we look at the Republican side of grassroots organizations, those that are in power in the legislature hate them quite a lot. Those in leadership, those amongst the Republican establishment. I'm talking about, you know, they look at groups like the Family Foundation, American Family Association, Commonwealth Policy Center, CPC. And they say that while at times they engage those groups in passing individual legislation largely, especially behind closed doors, and I've heard them say it, their comments are that these groups are Christian conservative far rights, and we can't let them grab control of the party. For an example, they, you know, these far right Christian conservative groups, and I put far right in quotations, don't like things like gambling. They don't like things like, you know, uh expanded drug use. They don't like expanded gaming. They they do not like those things and therefore uh they're called too conservative by the establishment. And then when you go to the more liberty grassroots types groups, I'm talking the Tea Party, I'm talking um things like Constitutional Kentucky, I'm talking groups like um American uh for prosperity, AFP. They look at those groups saying we don't like them because they're too ferocious, they want us to do too much, they just don't understand, they're demanding too much of us, we don't like them. It never crosses their mind to work with them at all. And it's because of that that this is what concerns me. You see, the Republican establishment refuses to engage on the conservative viewpoints in Kentucky as far as regards of many of issues, social issues, fiscal conservative issues, so on and so forth. They're relying on national politics largely to carry them through without actually trying to argue their viewpoints. And that could start to spell disaster for us locally here in the state. I think it's time that not just the Republican Party, but also Republican elected officials realize they have got to work with their grassroots groups. And they've also got to realize with where we're at a party and back off of their ridiculous behavior. For an example, take this tweet here. This guy is the president of the Kentucky College Republicans. And here he is making fun of the uh, college Republicans in Iowa that volunteered for Donald Trump. Now, Donald Trump uh, won by one of the largest victories out there and. He clearly was being helped by college Republicans instead of saying, wow, how great we've got a grassroots college Republicans willing to get out there and volunteer in Iowa. Instead, he decided to make fun of them by saying that they look like they've never met a girl before because he was saying they're all losers. Real good take by what is supposed to be the leader of college Republicans in Kentucky, don't you think? Perfect example of the true hate. They have for the grassroots. In fact, the Republican Party establishment, as well as those in leadership, they don't just not work with the Republican grassroots. They seek to destroy them. And when they lose power, when one day they possibly lose power because they never bothered to embrace their grassroots and allow them to do the heavy lifting for them to keep the population on their side. Well, they'll be looking back and saying, huh, well, maybe I shouldn't have made fun of a bunch of Trump volunteers saying that they've never talked to a woman before. Well, coming up after this, we'll be going into arguments on Senate Bill 10. You're listening to The Andrew Cooper Show, your source for Kentucky politics.
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
0: And you're back with the Andrew Coop show for the break. I mentioned we'd be going over Senate bill 10, Senate bill 10 hit the floor this week in the Senate where it was voted on voted. Yes. And passed. it's been proposed many times in the Senate. And what it would do is move our constitutional officers elections to the same year as the presidential elections. And there's a myriad of reasons that they say this is a good idea. Obviously I think it's a bad idea. We'll work through this. But in order to understand, first, why they think it's a good idea, let's hear. So this is being proposed by the main sponsor, Senator McDaniel, on this. He's sponsored it before. Let's hear a little bit of what he had to say in his opening speech introducing this bill. Let's hear what their start-off arguments are.
2: Now, Mr. President, if you will uh, hopefully indulge me under suspension of rules for a brief prop to help make a point, these are my remarks on the same subject from the 2014 session which was the second time I had proposed this measure. If we had passed this measure then and the voters had approved it, the counties of this commonwealth would have already realized over $30 million in savings and the commonwealth would have recognized nearly $4 million in savings. 2.5 million additional ballots would have been cast in gubernatorial elections and Kentuckians would have been spared countless hours of political ads interrupting their lives in odd-numbered years.
0: So this is uh, going to be a common motif. So there's two motifs and arguments that they're going to be heavily pushing behind this. One is going to be, well, three, I guess. One's going to be cost savings. The other is going to be ads, that ads are really annoying, that, that campaign ads are really annoying. And then number three is going to be that... Um, Well, it'll cause more voter participation. Those will be the three arguments that they're going to go to to say why we as Kentuckians should support for such a measure. So first, I want to talk about costs. Um, I want to really dig into that argument about the whole thing behind saving money. In there, he talked about it would save $35 million, $35 million. Now obviously when it comes to voting procedures and voting practices uh the legislature isn't concerned about saving money we'll go into that here in a second because truthfully that the cost argument is completely fake and uh another Individual, Southworth, Cinder Southworth goes after that here. We'll talk about that in a second. But let's deal with just the very concept. So let's even take down this face. Let's say it is about saving costs. Let's, let's even b- try to believe that. The same legislature that is right now proposing a budget that is $72 billion, a full $30 billion, not million, billion with a b, more than last year's budget. $30 billion more. With me. The difference of the savings is about one one hundredth of what they're planning to spend difference-wise between the two years. One two hundred and fifteenth-ish, if you were to look at the total budget of one year's budget. This is every four years, of course, but just one year. Less than one two hundredth of the budget. They want us to believe that they care about saving money. No, 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 no. This this has a lot more to do with something else, clearly and obviously. And we'll, we'll go through it. And they start to blow holes in their own arguments, too, as well. But I can tell you right now, the real reason why they support this, this is the real reason why, is because. Republicans, for quite some time, have seen that the Republican, quote unquote, um, federally, Republicans have dominated the state for quite some time. That Republicans at the Senate level have held it since, you know, both seats for quite some time, presidential ever since, what, what, Clinton? I think Clinton was the last Democrat Kentucky that that won Kentucky. And so oftentimes, the Republicans have proposed this hoping in order to cause the voters on presidential election years to vote for Republican governors. And if all you're about is saying, yeah, Republican victory, yay, then obviously that sounds like a great idea. But this is a permanent change, and it may favor you now, but don't be so short-sighted. Because remember, just 10 years ago, the Democrats had control of our state house. The Democrats had um, pretty solid electoral victories when it came to the governor's mansion. If we rewind to the mid-90s, just 30 years ago, in most of these people who are voting on this lifetime, the Democrats had control of the House, the Senate the governor's mansion, and we were voting for Democrats at the federal level. Mostly McConnell obviously had his seat in the nineties, but my point being, is that the Republican push for this is clearly being driven by electoral politics at the moment. And I've stated time and time again that changing our Constitution because of who's currently in office is short-sighted and dumb, and it shows a lack of reverence for our Constitution itself. It does. It's short-sighted and it's silly. And you can try to argue with me till the cows come home about that, but I'm going to tell you right now, constitutions are built to last hundreds of years, not just the few years you're on this planet. So think about how your decisions will impact your future generations. That's the way you have to think. That's the way our founders thought when they put this all together. They thought about future generations, stop being so selfish, and think about future generations yourself. The course I'm asking too much obviously of our elected officials especially because it passed so first argument is costs and next we have something this this odd argument about voter fatigue so this odd thing happens where and and you'll start to hear it where the legislators say that well we need to change it because they get voter fatigue but then the same legislature these other legislators that are saying look, I, I, this is going to make incredibly long ballots, and they're not mistaken. I mean, on presidential election years. Okay. Let's talk about how long that ballot would get just real quick. And I know we, we end up circling back around to it, but on presidential election years, we have right now, the president, obviously we have congressmen, obviously we have an opportunity to have senators on there. I think It'll be 2028 and 2028 next presidential election. uh, Rand Paul's seat will be up there soon. I don't know if he's going to run again or not, but so a sender's election, possibly Um, congressional for sure president for sure. Uh, You're going to have every single one of your state house reps, half of your state senators, uh, you're going to have in in somewhere like Lexington, every single one of your district city council members will be on the ballot. Some of your school board members will be on the ballot. You have, um, you know, some other positions. It could be positions throughout, you know, city commissions. I know like in Nicholasville, they're city commissioners. It depends on how you break down as far as your... um you know, times Supreme court justice that will be on this presidential election. But on top of that, because you have such high turnout and with Republicans in power, whenever they want to move a Republican constitutional amendment forward, because the process for this is it has to pass by at least 51 per 51 votes, the Senate, the house and 51% of the Senate, um, and then it goes forward for a ballot referendum for the citizens to vote on, which has to obviously, uh, you know, over half. The majority have to vote yes on. Clearly, it's yes or no is your only options. I guess you cannot vote, but you don't get counted in the algorithm. So so, and then they have to vote yes. So so many times they will end up putting uh, a lot of these constitutional amendments on the ballots for those times. and And, and just this time around, this time alone. Outside of them seeking to put on this ballot amendment, we've Senate Bill 10, or not Senate Bill 10, we've uh, House Bill 208, which are probably a different bill, but we'll most likely see a school choice amendment on this presidential election year. Um, they've got an amendment to remove the sine die days of the legislature. That could see some legs. Um, you've got people proposing things like marijuana amendment. I mean, I, I know of, what, four or, or five or so? constitutional amendments being proposed this session i i know for i almost think for a fact we'll end up with two we'll probably end up with this one and school choice and possibly a third so what they're talking about doing is now you'll have president congressmen, all senators or, or or um possibility of a federal senator all all congressmen um governor treasurer secretary of state. Auditor, Attorney General, Agriculture Commissioner, um, all your state house reps, half your state senators, um, your city councils, and all and, and and now two or three ballot, and it's just all on one ballot. That's a huge ballot, and that's a lot of races. I mean, you want to talk about down ticket races to keep track of. I mean, every single time we come around to election time, election time, I'm getting texts and messages, I'm sure you probably do, where people are asking, how do I vote in these judges? How do I vote in these city council races? How do I vote in state house races? How do I vote in school board races? Who is it that I should be voting for? And then... They talk about voter fatigue because voters get tired of ads. That's what they say. They say voters get tired of seeing the ads. And we're going to hear them say that. We're going to hear some of the, more of the arguments why they're for this here, some arguments against it. After this short break, you are listening to the Andrew Cooper show, your source for Kentucky politics. If you want to reach out to the show, feel free to email info at theandrewshow.com. We'll be back here in just a few short minutes. And you're back with the Andrew Kubrider show for the break. we were talking about Senate bill uh, 10 bill to change the election day of our governors from being off year to the same year as the presidential elections. We heard the bill sponsors first argument. Now we're going to hear an argument from Damon Thayer, who at the same time that he puts out this argument, then later on in his talk, he actually dispels his argument, but let's take a listen.
2: There's voter fatigue having elections three out of every four years. This bill once enacted, if if passed by the, the voters, and I believe it would pass by a wide margin if put to the voters, this would reduce regular elections to two out of every four years. You talk about getting sick and tired of all the commercials that the senator from Fayette 13 complains about. How about this last year, starting in June? If you lived in central Kentucky, current governor and his allies started berating the Republican nominee for governor about five minutes after the primary took place and didn't let up until election day. And the voters voted in fewer numbers this past election than they did in 2019. Turnout was down 8%, despite the fact that this was the most expensive gubernatorial election in Kentucky's history there's voter fatigue
0: so the claim is is that they need to go ahead and uh, change this out because voters are tired and fatigued they're tired of the ads they're tired of showing up to the ballot box three out of four years only getting one year off uh every four years and and his evidence of this of course is voter participation not pointing out that perhaps it's not as much voter participation as it is the, you didn't put forward a very good candidate, and perhaps not pointing out the fact that that if we really want to have this discussion over whether or not, over whether or not uh, it's a good idea for us to move this election onto another time, If if you can't trust your voters to show up to vote, three out of four years every uh, uh, May and November, if you are saying that they're too fatigued to show up for that, how are they going to handle the issue? So you're saying they're unable to focus on elections every year. So how are they going to handle so many elections at a time? Well, Damon Thayer, we just heard he's got later on in his speech, he kind of says something that points to what he just said is absolutely kind of a stupid point. It just is a dumb point. Here you go. I have confidence in the voters
2: of this commonwealth to be discerning, to study the issues. Yes, I think they can handle a longer ballot. I think they can handle the time it takes to educate themselves about the difference between issues in Washington, D.C. and the issues in Frankfurt that are affected when they vote for governor and attorney
0: general. I trust my voters. I trust the Kentucky voters to be discerning. Apparently not enough. You don't trust them to be discerning three out of four years. You only trust them to be discerning every other year. Apparently is what you're claiming. You only think they can handle the campaign ads and voting. Every other year, but more than that, well, that's fatigue and they're not going to show up to vote. And also to challenge this idea, this idea that we need more people to vote, that more people voting is a good idea. Look, if, if, you are too tired to show up to elections. If you, if, if we had elections every year, every May and every single November, and you don't want to show up and vote and you're tired of hearing about them, guess what? If you don't care enough about your governance to be paying attention every year, I don't want you voting. I don't want you at the polls. I want people who are paying attention. I want people that want to vote every year. I want people that want to study the issues. People who say it's too difficult for me to vote every year. Why can't you just move it on to one year so I can sit there and somehow discern between a presidential election, a governor's election, attorney general's election, secretary of state's election, a treasurer's election, a auditor's election, a commissioner of agriculture election, my state house reps, my state senators, my congressman. I can discern through all those races One time at one time of the year. But for some reason, I can't vote every year. That doesn't compute to me. If you're able to comprehend that very long list of races at one time, you should be able to comprehend. Voting every year, that doesn't make sense. If the voters are capable of of all those races, then they're capable of voting every year. Period. End of story. And I'm not just the only one saying that this is a bad idea. Um, you know, but there was, there was one other argument that was actually an interesting argument that didn't get any kind of legs that is actually, we're talking about, it came from starve Stivers. His argument was that because we have an off year election, we only have state elections, which means when there's election fraud or election issues in our state elections, it goes to state courts compared to if it was being held on the same year as federal elections, you could then go to federal court with your election election issues. That, that's actually an interesting point that I wish that was worth debating over. But Stivers was the only one who brought it up like nobody else even brought it up. But let's hear. Uh, so Southworth speaks up against the Senator Southworth. What's here she had to say about voter fatigue argument?
3: Speak against the measure, Mr. President.
0: Please proceed.
3: Mr. President, uh, the theme word right now has been voter fatigue. And I really take a big issue with this. Because I think, first of all, it's not interrupting American citizens' lives to have to go vote. This is, after all, a country created of, by, and for the people. So the people, as we all learn, or hopefully learn in our earliest civics classes, are the sovereigns in this country. And it's not an interruption for us to do our due diligence. Uh, our basic duty, which is to select our representatives.
0: And she's right. She's right. She's right on the money there. It is not, it should not be. Okay. We're talking about your, we're talking about your governor's elections too, as well. If anything, you would hope we should live in a country and a state and in a society where people, where, where the presidential election is begging to be on the same year as governor elections, because the governor has a lot more effect on your everyday life than the president ever. Will. A lot more effect. Same as the state government. And she's exactly right. That this is supposed to be a government for the people, by the people. And if paying attention to what the government is doing is too tedious for you, then you don't deserve to vote. How about that? I'm willing to say that. I'm willing to say that. Now, um, she does make another point. So they say that, well, we're one of only three states that vote in this off year like this. Uh, And Southworth makes a pretty good point about why that is. Take a listen.
3: Um, I think in the comparison, people talk about, uh, well, other states are doing this. Other states don't elect all of their executive branch. And I think that's a great thing about Kentucky.
0: And she's right. Other states. It is. All states handle things different. Let me give you an example. Let me give you an example about one of our neighbors, Tennessee, okay? So on their constitutional officers, right? So their constitutional officers they have got the governor, lieutenant governor. Uh, they've got a, a treasurer. They have a, um, let's see, I, I, they've got a comptroller, uh, a secretary, of state, of course, and an attorney general and a governor and lieutenant governor. However, the only person in that mix voted on by the people is the governor, and then along with him, the lieutenant governor, they share the ticket. The secretary of state, the control, and the treasurer is selected by the general assembly, the state general assembly. And then the Supreme Court appoints the attorney general. So, no, not every state is the same. And that's what we're talking about. We do have a higher number of elected people that are elected by the people than any other side of things, than any other side of things. So, clearly, Senate Bill 10, It passed. Pass the floor, but I got to tell you this much. I am not a big fan of this. I like our governor's elections being a separate election. It's important. All of our state constitutional officers are important, and we deserve to give them the time to study the issues. They are more important than your congressional races. I'm telling you it is. You may think, Andrew, why is that the case? First off, whether it's going to go Republican or Democrat is pretty much already decided in most of these congressional districts. Second off, one half of one third of our federal government is your congressional race, but that governor affects your everyday life. We'll be back to talk more about the budget after this short break. You're listening to the Andrew Cooper writer show. Conservative constitutional. It's the Andrew Cooper writer show, keeping you informed on what's going on right here in Kentucky. And you are back with The Andrew Cooper Show. Of course, I'm your host, Andrew Cooper So the budget came out this week. Uh, yesterday, I dug into a few chunks of it of notable points. And in this final segment, I've got a few more points I want to make, a few more notable points within the budget. We'll probably do this all next week due at the end. But we see $700,000 out of our 70... <laughs> 2 billion dollar budget. Uh, they they're setting aside $700,000 for Teach for America. Now this has been a common thing in our budget that's been going on through some time, but who is and what is Teach for America? Well, Teach for America was formed with a good purpose in mind, incentivize the top graduates and top performers at colleges and universities to go on and for 2 years be teachers. And failing school districts where it's one, harder to find teachers, and two, uh, they they are some of the most underperforming districts in the nation, mainly dealing with things like classroom discipline and other issues that obviously lead to the school's problems and get these students in there, these top university graduates to understand this side of things before they go on to become leaders in the nation, leaders in business, leaders in government, leaders in... You know, nonprofits, so on and so forth. A bold idea, a good idea to kind of get them that experience of teaching, too, as well. Uh, You know, learning to teach middle school or elementary school kids every day for two years can certainly give you a lot of skills, I think, later in life. Probably a lot of patience as well. But, but what has started out as a great idea has morphed into a hotbed of training the quote-unquote future leaders in diversity, equity, inclusion, and DEI concepts because that is what has become their main mission. It's not just to create educators and better funding for education into the future. No, their mission has morphed into making sure that the leaders of tomorrow are well-rooted in their diversity, equity, and inclusion concepts. And you don't have to dig far onto the Teach for America website to find evidence of just how far left they are. For if you head on over to their website, you can go right to their mission statement. It says, Teach for America finds, develops, and supports equity-oriented leaders, individually and in teams, so they can transform education and expand opportunity with children starting in the classroom. And if you scroll down just a bit, on their mission statement page. And by a bit, I mean literally a few scrolls, like a few clicks of a keyboard down. You'll find their DEI statement, their diversity, equity, and inclusiveness. It says the Teach for America has Teach for America made a commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion More than a decade ago and continues to operate with certainty that a broad, diverse, and accountable coalition of people united around who share a common purpose is essential to the mission of educational equity and excellence. Our evolved commitment maintains our original belief with two additional insights. The change we seek must be shaped by those of us who are most directly impacted by educational inequity alongside those who whose identities and experiences differ, and that racial inequity interrupts the possibilities of educational equity. The progress we seek is only possible if the coalition works. So a decade ago, they made their DEI statement, and then it's been updated recently to make sure that you knew they were addressing racism. And it's not difficult to see how else that this has been affected and infested Teach for America with these DEI concepts. I mean, uh, look, you have um, not just members of their board that are are obviously uh, DEI professionals. Teach for America does things like, I don't know, host workshops like this. This is their January 18th. Uh, so literally yesterday, Monthly Power Hour Workshop, and it was on strategic staffing, enabling a more diverse team-based education workforce. Now, we've talked about the, the evils of DEI and why it's a problem. A big problem is because it doesn't focus on a person's uh, uh, um, merit. It doesn't focus on their ability to get a job done. Instead, it focuses on immutable characteristics like gender and race, and then mutable characteristics like uh, your sexual identity. And it focuses on that over competence and ability to get the job done. I don't care what color skin you have. I care that you can teach my kid to read and write and do math. That's what I care about. And that's all you should care about as well. But that's not what these groups are caring about. That's not at all. And their quest to infest the leaders of tomorrow with these far left crazy ideologies has had some success after all. I mean, and it makes sense how this fell into a DEI cesspool. I mean, the, the entire point of the program was to get influential people and in, into the program in order to teach them about the challenges of others. It would only take a natural jump for them to suddenly have uh, a hate for the idea of equal opportunity that everybody has the same opportunity to be educated completely, but instead to worry about outcomes, because that is the real evil of equity. All it cares about is outcomes. It doesn't care about opportunity. It robs you of your individual decision making. The best way I've heard equity described was uh, it was at a Charlie Kirk speech, and he mentioned that if he gave everybody in there a $100 and said, now go forward out into the world and I'll see you back here tomorrow. And then some people would have come back. They would have spent all hundred. Some people would have spent $50 of it. Some people may have invested it somehow. And now it's 102, $103 is what they came by. That was equal opportunity. Everybody has a hundred dollars. Everybody has the same chance. Equity says that when these people come back, And you say, okay, you spent your hundred, you, you made your hundred make money. So you now have a hundred and two. Well, now I want everybody to be equaled out. So actually you're going to give him $51 and now you have $51. And now that is an equitable outcome, an equal outcome, an equal opportunity is here you go. Equity, think of that as an equal outcome that everybody ends up at the same place, which robs people of personal decision making. But it makes sense that that's what this would create. Because you have something, this this entire idea of DEI and why it's being pushed by college-educated white liberals is because they themselves think they're smarter and better than everybody else. And they feel guilty about it. They feel, self-importantly, they feel bad about what they have achieved. And so, therefore, it must be because the system is just unfair to other people. They feel guilty. And that is what Teach for America was inevitably going to leave to. And their their push and decision-making to to educate the future workforce and DEI concepts has been successful. Because outside of the many, many, many Democrat office holders, there are Teach for America alumni, outside of the DEI professionals, outside of founders of far-left nonprofit groups, that they've sent through their educational, re-educational systems. Other notable members, people worth mentioning, is people like uh, DeRay McKesson, an early member of the Black Lives Matter movement. Brittany Packett, another BLM activist and founder at Campaign Zero. The nonprofit, largely accredited, with starting the Defund the Police movement. Alec Ross, a Hillary Clinton advisor. Renee Montoya, a Soros Justice Fellow and founder of a nonprofit that helps illegal immigrants stay in America. Clinton Smith, a writer for the New Yorker who's had featured TED Talks like How to Raise a Black Son in America. And you see the list goes on and on and on. And what's funny is there's really no amount of notable conservatives or Republicans that have come from Teach for America. Or at least none they're truly proud of, enough to mention. Yet, for some reason, despite the fact that while this legislature is considering bills to outlaw DEI spending in K-12 education, they are still moving forward with giving $700,000 to groups that push DEI in public education. I gave you an example yesterday of $4.6 million they're spending. Here today is an example of $700,000 that they're spending. You see, that's why every day I discover this, I get more doubtful that the bill outlawing DEI and K-12 through education will end up moving. Maybe universities does, but the bill in K-12 through education, I doubt it. Why? Because if they actually enact real punishment on those who are pushing these divisive ideas in our public schools, they themselves would come under the gun. It is the legislators funding a lot of this push, and then they wonder how it's spread. Guys, you're writing the checks, and you're spending our money to do it. Well, y'all, that's what I got time for today on the Andrew Coop Writer Show. I thank you all for joining me. Hopefully, you can stay warm this weekend. We'll see you back here on Monday, 9 a.m. on WZXI, 1 o'clock everywhere else. Y'all have a great rest of your